Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Fletcher. Welcome into Chasing Better Conversations. Our goal on this podcast, since most of us engage in hundreds of interactions every single week, is to explore what goes into the conversations that actually end up making a difference, advancing the ball, changing things for the better. Along the way, we'll have the opportunity to enjoy conversations with individuals who consistently push the envelope, who challenge our thinking and our behavior, and who lead us into the future. Larry Bridgesmith knows a thing or two about instigating better conversations. He brings more than 30 years of experience in dispute resolution and innovative workplace strategies to clients, students, and business entities. He is adjunct professor of law at Vanderbilt University's Law School and the inaugural executive director of the Institute for Conflict Management at Lipscomb University. Larry has served as the chair of Tennessee's Alternative Dispute Resolution Commission, which works with the Tennessee Supreme Court. In 2016, he co-founded Legal Alignment, which provides technology tools and legal project management training in order to assist lawyers in managing the delivery of legal services more efficiently with greater transparency and price predictability. The organization's primary legal technology platform, Dash, was chosen as a finalist in the 2021 British Legal Technology Awards program in the Innovative Legal Services category. The Tennessee State Bar and the Tennessee Alliance for Legal Services have awarded Larry the Presidential Award and the Justice Janice Holder Award, respectively, for assisting in the implementation of legal technology across Tennessee. In May, the Daily Report announced its winners and finalists for the 2023 Southeastern Legal Awards and recognized Larry as an industry innovator. And that's putting it mildly. As you might suspect, Larry and his bride reside in Nashville, Tennessee. Larry, it's good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Eric. I'm delighted. I love the work you do. Well, I appreciate that. But let's, um, Larry and I, full disclosure, go back maybe a little longer than either one of us want to admit. I don't know how you feel about that, Larry. But um, I met Larry when I was in high school. And we both, you were a couple of years ahead of me and in school at what is now Rochester University in Rochester, Michigan. At some point during our time in Michigan, you and uh, your wife-to-be became married and uh, you did something I was completely unaware, unacquainted with at the time. You combined your last name and her last name and that, and took that as as your last name tell me what what brought that on and what was what was your thinking then well it, it, it when your last name is smith as my born name was and my wife linda was linda smith you'd be fascinated to realize how often you're confused for someone else my wife was often stopped in a grocery store and said no you've got a bad check record and she said are we talking about the same linda smith but for <laughs> me it was different because as a new lawyer practicing in the Detroit area, there were five Larry Smith attorneys. And just 
as soon as I had been sworn in as an attorney, I'd received a confidential psychiatric report on behalf of a client of a Larry Smith attorney, but it wasn't (laughs) me. And I thought, well, you know, at this stage, this can be fixed if we act now. And so I had conversations with my parents. My dad told me, look, if I'd known I could do that, I would have done that a long time ago. Wow. So it was well received by family. And we all went to court and we were renamed Bridge Smith. My wife's maiden name was Bridges. So I often say we dropped the S, the capital S and kept hers. All I remember thinking is, well, that's creative. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, speaking of creativity, it's it's really amazing that I didn't realize at the time how that meaning of Bridge Smith Ah. would become core to who I am and what I've been doing for the last many years. So we we talked a little bit. I I gave some of your uh, credentials in in the introduction. Um, And what's a day in uh, Larry Bridge Smith's life like? Well, most of the time it's sitting at my laptop in my home office and pandemic didn't begin that. It was the case before. And I was one of those few people who lived in Zoom before anybody knew who what, what Zoom was. But most of my time is spent in either writing or teaching or the other part of my life is technology in law. And so I do a lot of um, bridge building in the world of legal technology we can talk at length about how difficult that is for lawyers to comprehend or embrace, but that's what I do for the most part. And I teach not only at Vanderbilt Law School, but Arizona State University's law school, the Sandra Day O'Connor Law School, and that's all remote. So all of that teaching at ASU is spent in a hybrid context, meaning There are lectures that they watch and listen to. There are readings that they do on their own time, but they also negotiate in real time. And Hmm. so learning how to negotiate over a virtual meeting is really a part of today's business world. It happens every day, multiple times every day. So I love having that opportunity with not lawyers there, but mid-career professionals doing all sorts of things. This is this may be backtracking just a little bit, but your the class you teach at Vanderbilt, at least one of them is legal project management, right? In the spirit of our topic, what mm-hmm. conversations aren't taking place around this particular topic around legal project management, or maybe a better way to put it, uh, firms where. This is a, a a a relatively new topic where people are wrestling with how to implement. What conversations are the most productive to be having in the early stages? Well, I think that with the advent of large language models or LLMs like OpenAI's ChatGPT, there are many now. Uh, one is specifically dedicated to law. That's Harvey, and the the knowledge and the awareness of lawyers like everybody else on the planet that there are these ai tools that i can use i don't have to be an engineer 
I can simply ask a series of questions and get amazingly accurate feedback. They're not perfect, and that's why a lawyer needs to be a part of every one of those exchanges to understand if the AI, generative AI, we call it, is accurate or needs to be adjusted or modified in any way. But the speed with which it can get you started has made lawyers, for the most part, aware and either terrified or exuberant about these (laughs) large language models. Terrified if they think they can't use them or they won't benefit them and it attacks their business model of what I call waste rather than efficiency. But enthusiastic if they understand that their clients, the ones they want to satisfy, are expecting those efficiencies. And this is a great way to attain them. Now that everyone's aware of how these large language models can uh, shape the work that we do and our supervision of them is essential, then I think the conversation should be around, don't be afraid. Let's examine how these models will help you be a better lawyer. And in the process, we're going to explore how it can make us more money. Because I'm convinced that efficiency in project management is a money maker, not a money loser. Spoke to someone in a very large and recognizable uh, global law firm who whose firm converted from billable hour preference to fixed fee preference. And he was an IP litigator, you know, one of the most prestigious litigation roles a law firm recognizes and a lot of money depends upon you being able to retain your brand. And he said to me, you know, I'm really grateful that I've now learned that fixed fee pricing is more profitable. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if I gave a estimate of time and that estimate proved to be less than accurate, then it's a money loser. But if I can beat that prediction, my billable rate in essence goes from 750 to 1050, the equivalent of the efficiency that's brought into it. He said, with fixed fee pricing and understanding how project management applies to law, I make 10% more profit off of my work than I did right. under a fixed fee model. Excuse me, under a billable hour model. What conversations are really, uh, in your view, central to um, where the where the profession is today and where we're headed? Well, I think the, the term that best captures this moment in time probably isn't large language models. It's digital transformation. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, I was asked to come to speak to the legal group to, to train them basically in a two-day training because this was a large global grocery distributor and retailer. I mean, hundreds of thousands of employees. Their legal group, in-house lawyers, were about 30. And of course, they had a whole passel of outside lawyers as well. But they wanted to know how digital transformation, which was being expected of them by the C-suite, worked. 
Mm. Well, the C-suite is driving the business model. And in every corporation, large or small, the only item by and large that is not certain or certified is the legal expense. Legal legal spend. Legal spend. Today, those CEOs and CFOs are telling their legal department, you're going to cut your budget. We're not going to add to it. Your budget is going to be cut next year, 2024, by 40%. So get on the bandwagon. You can't be the sole exception in our organization to efficiency, price certainty, and transparency. And I'm convinced that the choices of those outside law firms that are engaged in embracing digital transformation of every sort, especially in project management, are going to be the winners. And and last year proved to be the case. When we look at the biggest profitability enhancements in 2022 in the large firm, top 100, the top five or six of them were fully engaged in project management, digital transformation, the use of artificial intelligence, they're separating themselves from the pack. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to be big to benefit from these digital tools. In fact, it it, it may be a bigger asset the smaller you are, it seems to me. I believe so. Yeah. Matter yeah. of fact, the smallest law firm I ever worked with in this regard was a single lawyer who did immigration law. <laughs> and... He lived on the border in New Mexico, and so he had an enormous uh, caseload of immigration cases. But he had four non-lawyers, I hate that phrase, people who didn't have a law license, who Legal he worked with. I prefer that by a long shot. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but the point is, he said, I'm losing my shirt because I can't know what's not being done can you teach us project management? And a year later, he said, not only did you save my rear end, you made me profitable like I've never been profitable before. A one lawyer law firm yeah. was able to, and, and immigration is virtually all fixed fee. You know, there's a price you pay to get a particular immigration matter handled and inefficiency will cost you dearly. I was a part of a large law firm. You'll never discover who it was, so you can't go back and define (laughs) it. And every year we'd have this compensation meeting, and I served on the executive committee, and profitability was never discussed. Instead, compensation was based upon the totality of revenue, hours billed and collected, without reference to how much it cost. So the biggest slug of money went to those who put in the time without regard to whether it brought in any profitability at all. And it leads to all kinds of, I think, deceptive practices, because when you're billing by the hour, the challenge is to bill as much or more than anybody else. Just this week, I saw the award given to the largest billable our lawyer in the nation at 37, almost 3,800 billable hours. What does he do with the rest of his time? (laughs) Nothing. Does he sleep? 
<laughs> so the, the point is simply, unless you understand that ratio, you really can't manage a law firm. And law firms, in order to hopefully reach that budget goal of, of profitability, they do all kinds of unhelpful things. Like I knew of a lawyer who had spent two weeks on vacation in Europe. And because he had 26 billable hours per day. Yeah. <laughs> he got the biggest slug. <laughs> That's a trick. Three conversations that you think could, should be taking place if they were taking place in the business community today would change the shape of the marketplace? Great question. I think the attention given to digital transformation has to be a plank mm -hmm. on every organization's uh, high priority list. Knowing what it is and how to do it is, is critical for those companies that are going to survive. Mm -hmm. Profit, nonprofit, government, whatever. Two, right. uh, two oh, other, two other ideas. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about my colleagues in the legal profession when I say this. Uh, we are the most suicidal profession, mm -hmm. and there's an enormous lack of mental health among our numbers. What are the reasons for that? Well, there are many reasons, and one of them is this expectation of time, but that's mm. not the only cause. So making law hospitable mm. to those who want to work in the industry and creating a culture that is favorably disposed yeah. to the lawyers and the employees of a law firm as opposed to pitting them against each other is an essential conversation that has to be held. One or two conversations that were pivotal in your personal life. Well, one's a category of conversations and the other is a specific conversation. That's the fair. category is over decades of representing business clients. I can't tell you the number of conversations about price predictability transparency and real-time information about the matter that you're representing them mm -hmm. and the ability to efficiently to the business's expectation get a problem solved and a job done i've had that conversation with enormous numbers of client representatives so there's this pent-up need to break through the current culture of yeah. how we price and deliver our work. But the second one, I love this because uh, I became friends first and then a business partner with a, a technologist who has a PhD in AI and trusted networks or blockchain. Mm. And one of the first conversations that we ever had he hired me to help him with an employment matter to get out of a problem that he had, but we became close friends and unrelated to that legal representation. He said, okay, you help me. How can I help you? And so I began spinning out this wild theory that I had that, you know, efficiency can actually be of greater benefit to the lawyer 
perhaps even, than the client. But that's what they expect. So we had this conversation and he had a whiteboard and he was drawing figures on the whiteboard as I spoke. And when I was finished, he took a look at the board and he said, is that it? And he had developed on the whiteboard and architected a technology that would address this issue of price predictability, transparency, and efficiency. And so I said, okay, let's work together. But in the course of those conversations, he said this way back 15 years ago. He said, have I ever told you about the alternative universe? And I just sort of chuckled, you know, and I thought, well, he's lost his mind again. (laughs) But no, he went on to say, you know, there is another universe out there. It's parallel to this one, but it's different. And he had in his mind Web3, the metaverse, this world of virtual reality that we're all becoming somewhat slightly more aware of. Wow. And he knew it because he envisioned it at least 10 years before it became known to the rest of us. And that's what kept me focused on, okay, there's a lot about technology I don't understand, but if it can create an alternative universe, not exclusively alternative, but one that runs in parallel with this one, I want to be a part of that. Cool. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. Last book that you read that, uh, precipitated or instigated great conversations in your life? Well, the one that I can't get past in my mind is a book by Frederick, spelled with a C, Lalou, ending with an X, a French name. And he wrote the book called Reinventing Organizations. It was a journey in my mind that said, oh, that makes so much sense. Because in his model, there are basically five different organizational models from family to church to corporations to egalitarian organizations where everybody has an equal say. But the one that he talked about and then gave proof of by case studies is what he called the Teal organization. The Teal model says that although there are superiors charged with responsibility for decision-making. The vast majority of decision-making in a teal organization is decentralized, distributed, democratized, so that it's an interdependent organization where each of us are given the opportunity to do what we do best to satisfy our need for purpose and meaning but unique to the organizational objectives and then filtered and factored through a collegial model of management and production that the evidence is far superior to any other business model in terms of productivity, profitability, market share, the businesses that have seek that have sought to achieve that are outliers in their industry. And it's not easy. It can easily go off the rails, but it proves to be the most productive and profitable kind of organization. And I don't want to be a part of anything that isn't a teal organization. It's got to be, that's got to be the ultimate 
environment for uh, stimulating interaction and conversations that make a difference. That's absolutely. That's, that's cool. You know, when cool. when failure is not a is not a possibility, there's a lot of hiding mm. the ball. Mm. When we can be open and honest with each other and know that we depend on each other and none, none of us are superior to the others. Boy, the, the kind of productivity and waking up each morning wanted to get to that is radically different than most of the employment that I've experienced over time. One conversation we should quit having. <laughs> oh, that's good. I think we should quit having any kind of competition, uh, any kind of conversation that pits us against others. Mm. There's a book by uh, two MIT data scientists called The Second Machine Age. And, and they pivot around the year 2006 as the, the beginning of the second machine age. In their definition, the steam engine created in the late 17th century driven, has driven human progress from that point until 2006 in a pretty linear and predictable manner, just a, a line of human progress. But with the computer, and we're seeing this now, we can't predict what the next legal technology is going to be because it's now growing exponentially. The outcome of that is twofold. And this is what captures my attention. One is that we've gone from a competitive economy to a collaborative economy or we're staying in the first machine age where Individual competition as well as market competition is a part of the culture of every organization. But the, col- the, the collaborative economy is an, is an economy of abundance. And if we don't see that in what's happening in the digital world today, we're not looking. Because you can bring a group of people together around the globe, focus on any particular issue resolve it out of the diversity of thought and experience that they bring to the problem in rapid ways, but would never happen except collaboratively. So if we are truly in the second machine age, I believe we are, some call it the fourth industrial revolution. (laughs) It's the technology age the information age driven by these incredible processing machines, then the only way we're going to thrive and win is collaboratively. And there are even evidences of competitors in the marketplace who have learned to collaborate, not monopolistically, but business-wise to their mutual advantage. One or two people living or dead that you would love to sit down and have a conversation with and why? Yeah. Well, one of them, (laughs) I'm not a mathematician. As a matter of fact, I went to law school because I'm not a mathematician. (laughs) And many of my colleagues will say the same thing, but I'd love to sit down with Einstein. I mean, I, I would love, I mean, he was a futurist. 
he wasn't just a f- phenomenal mathematician. I mean, his theory of relativity is still proving true today with new mechanics and physics that are showing us he was right all along. He was holistic and he was an integrated thinker. That's the kind of person I'd like to know more and know better. So he's one. Um, then the other is probably not quite so uh, exotic as that, but um, I'll be honest, there are people like your father that I wish I could sit down and have a conversation with. Ah. Because he was a remarkable man. I knew him because of the long period of time my mother worked for him. And uh, just a man of immense vision and courage and persistence. Yeah, I'd I'd like to know more about Ah. that. Well, I'd take another conversation or two with him, too. (laughs) I bet you would. That wouldn't be a bad thing. I get to sit on this side of the microphone and ask all the questions. Anything that you want to bring to the table before we wrap up? Well, other than to say, I have more optimism in our future than I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not frightened of the future because I think we have tools that can help us realize this collaborative economy and an era of abundance. If you were going to itemize the characteristics of the best conversations, whatever the topic, um, what are your thoughts about one or two or three of characteristics of better conversations? Well, you've just demonstrated them because you are a master at open-ended questions. (laughs) So if we want to have great conversations with others, it's not about telling them what I know. It's it's about asking them what they know. Mm -hmm. And those open-ended questions lead to all kinds of more questions. And when we're asking questions about something that's important to someone else, as you have done, there's no end to the conversation. And then taking those responses and asking more questions related to that. I don't know a person on the planet. I'm an introvert. Mm. I don't enjoy socializing with strangers. But someone who can ask me open-ended questions, I'm going to just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Yeah. And it begins conversation because that's where the commonalities are found. Yeah. I'm convinced that the best conversations don't end. They are just bridges to the next. And the more we can have this ongoing dialogue, as opposed to, I need to win this debate, uh, then the better we better off we are. And, and, uh, you've certainly demonstrated that in, in your professional life, your career and, uh, and today. Thank Thank you. you. And you're right. We're we're wired to win and we need to change that wire. Yeah. Yeah. There's that's, that's a conversation we'll have next time. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks Larry. My takeaways from our conversation with Larry are these 
Law firms, or for that matter, organizations of any type who are attuned to the marketplace should be incorporating conversations that are focused on the digital transformation that is taking place. And in contrast to being fearful, great leadership is exploring the doors that this transformation is opening for uh, increased efficiency and new levels of productivity. And to go one step further, stating the obvious, the marketplace is changing. While we're not required to love this change or even to be completely comfortable with it, our mental health and our relationships to a significant degree depend on honest, respectful conversations about the topic. I'm so appreciative of innovators like Larry who help lead us in these discussions, facilitate these conversations. Thank you for being a part of today's conversation. If you found it helpful, please subscribe and rate and even share the podcast with others that you think might be interested. And until next week, here's to a healthy series of conversations for each one of us.